I'm Richard Dodd, and you're listening to the Ecology Academy podcast. This is a show where we get to talk and learn about all things ecological, including interviews with top ecologists, both employers and employees, those working with ecologists, and also aspiring and inspiring career-seeking individuals setting out to make a difference. The show aims to provide you with insights, advice, and inspiration to help you succeed and excel as an effective ecologist and to make a real difference to our natural environment. So hi there and welcome to the Ecology Academy podcast and I'm delighted to be able to interview and introduce to you today no other than Rob Oates. Now Rob has an MBA from the University of Durham University, a master's degree in psychology from the University of Liverpool and a chartered biologist, a former British Army Reserve infantry soldier with the 4th Battalion Merston Regiment and for most of his life he's been a fight sports fitness and powerlifting zealot and has won gold in most of the Europe's major Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitions multiple business owner and El Capitan at leading ecological consultancy, Arbtech Consulting Limited. He hasn't watched any television or read a newspaper in over a decade, but is a savage reader of books, predominantly biology, economics and psychology. So, Rob Oates, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Richard. It's been very generous. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, before we kick off, I mean, uh, let's. I, I think there's a little bit of needs to be unpacked there, really. So, particularly about... Um, so can, can you spend a little bit more time talking about that you've never, well, for the past decade, haven't watched television or read newspapers? Where, where's that come from? Um, yeah, so I probably need to qualify that with the fact that there is actually one here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, used by my girlfriend a couple of times a week to watch uh, things on Netflix and other stuff that might, would make my, uh, you know, would send me to sleep, let's be polite. And um, uh, yeah, so about <clears throat> 10 or 12 years ago, um, I came home from work. I used to work a lot, an awful lot. Um, and, and it's one of the things you can talk about later, perhaps. But um, uh, I'd done a long day in London. I used to live very close to the train station on the other side of Chester and get like the 5.15 a.m. train down to London, do a long day there, and then come home. And I, I remember uh, coming into my apartment one night, very tired, probably about 9, 9.30 at night. Hadn't really eaten properly throughout the day. I wasn't. That was a period of my life where I was working so much, I did no fitness activity, no nothing. And apart from work, really, I wasn't, I wasn't all that fulfilled or happy. And I slumped down in front of the uh, television next to my uh, then-girlfriend, now ex-wife, and put my feet up on the coffee table. Didn't even take my shoes off or nothing. You know, I probably stank. I needed a shower. And I sat there and watched television for about half an hour before I even moved. And I just thought something clicked with me, uh, and I thought, I'm not doing this anymore. And then um, I said to Kylie at the time, uh, what, what are we doing here? What are we, what are we, re- what are we even watching? She says, I don't really know. So I unplugged the television, took it downstairs and threw it in the, we got these massive trash cans in apartment blocks and just I haven't watched TV since. Cool. And I don't uh, regret it at all because I hear people talk about the eighth season of Game of Thrones, which is 10 hours. <laughs> and, and you would think like you've spent 80 hours watching literally mindless drivel. And, you know, you magnify that. And a lot of people, you know, they, they, they live their whole lives coming home at five or six o'clock in the afternoon. They sit in front of the television until midnight. And that's a full-time job if you do that five days a week in six hours. <laughs> There's a lot of hours there, gone, isn't there? A lot, a lot. There's a lot of hours there. And you could, you know, I hear people make excuses all the time about they'd like to learn to play an instrument or do more things with their kids or do something about their well-being, health and fitness or, I don't know, study, whatever. And they never have the time, but the, you know, if you ask that person, oh, have you seen the latest series of X, Y, Z, or did you catch that film or whatever? They've always seen it. 
And so, yeah, I make a, I make a point of uh, the only time I ever watch that is maybe I think I've probably turned it on myself once or twice this year so far to watch something in Spanish with the subtitles and whatever, so that I can keep in touch with that language. Is it, yeah, because you um, obviously you're in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so and you've obviously been to imagine around the world, and so in terms of languages, then so um, how's your how's your Spanish and Portuguese? You hablo español bastante bien, gracias. I speak Spanish pretty well, thanks. And uh, with my daughter being half Brazilian and my, my ex being Brazilian, I speak reasonable Portuguese. Uh, and I've just started learning Arabic on Duolingo. Okay, yeah. Just fun, really, more than anything else. But um, yeah. yeah, something a bit different. There's, a, there's some great apps out there. Yeah, I've started to learn, uh, started to learn German on Duolingo. So, uh, oh, right, okay. <laughs> only started. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty hard, I think, actually. It is a Germanic language, but, but nevertheless, I think German's supposed to be quite difficult. Well, you know, similar to you. So, uh, in, in, in terms of um, uh, let's look. Let, look well, let's go back to that time. You said you, you know, you all you were doing. Well, majority of the time you were, you know, working really with hours and time. So, where mm. was that? And what, were you, what were you doing? I started. Uh, I started Artec as a sole trader in two thousand and five. Um, kind of while I was finishing my uh, when I was finishing at uni, really for the first time. I was working as a tree surgeon. I I, I did whatever I could as an Artec. Uh, I worked at the same time in a bargain booze uh, in the evenings. Or it might have been, no, I think I delivered pizzas in the evenings and worked in bargain booze at weekends. I basically had like four jobs. Good combination. Okay. And that was in order to obviously pay my living expenses, try and accelerate the, down the payment of my student loan and just get myself off the ground. And slowly, uh, I managed to build up enough um, work with Robert Oates Trading as Arctech to incorporate the company, which I did on the 17th of January 2006. I tend to go into things quite too flutter anyway, and that's, you know since I've since then I've learned kind of why. But why is that? I enjoyed the process. Of, I enjoy the process of winning, um, and I like to I like to apply myself to something that's difficult, and I'm I'm quite happy to grind out as long as it takes until I've you know won, quote unquote. And so um, so yeah, I, I enjoyed the process of uh, before Google or before I knew how to use a spreadsheet. Uh, when I wanted to generate work as a as a sole trader, I used to handwrite. I used to get the yellow pages out and handwrite letters to every landscape architect, architect, chartered town planner, uh, other tree surgeons, landscape gardening companies, and say to them, you know, hi, this is who I am. These are my services, and if you refer me to your uh, clients or you'd like to meet up and talk about referring me to some of your clients for any of these services. I'm happy to offer your clients a 15% discount or you a 15% commission. Uh, no idea why I chose 15% in case you were going to ask that. And it worked very well. Uh, people liked the handwritten letter. People liked the effort I went to and I would follow that up with a phone call and if that didn't work, I'd follow it up with another letter and another one and um, I would go to a lot of things that these days I consider to be, you know, a, a thorough waste of time, but uh, like these BNI breakfast meetings and all kinds of stuff. I basically did everything and anything to try and generate business. And I was quite good at it, uh, relatively speaking. And I, I kind of enjoyed that process of growing my then very, very small uh, fledgling company. Uh, that became more of an obsession than anything else. And that's, that's kind of what led me down that path of just working. More or less all the time, I gave up a lot of hobbies and uh, interests that I had in order to you know, sacrifice a lot. I mean, it was maybe two or three years where I worked seven days a week straight for two or three years. If I went on holiday, I took my BlackBerry laptop with me. On Christmas Day, I used to do the thing with my parents, do the thing with my uh, girlfriend's parents, and then go into the office for like four or five hours to knock out some report that was late or chase some debt or, or invoice somebody or something. Oh, sorry, Rob. Just going back, so, you know, you 
undertook um, was it University of Central Lancashire, uh, Lancashire. So yeah. your obstacle <laughs> course there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so how did you get onto that course? So, what, what, why, why did you go down that route? What was it? Uh, uh, sorry, uh, I do get asked that quite a lot actually. When I was younger, seventeen maybe, sixteen, seventeen, I wanted to be a Royal Marines commando, mm-hmm. and so. They, they often used to run open days and little courses and weekends here and there that you could do to go and get exposure to it before you were actually ready to join or old enough to join. So I did a lot of those. I did two or three with the Army and two or three with the Navy, uh, including the Marines, obviously. And at the time, when I became eligible, I think you can join at 17 in so many months with your parents' consent or your guardian's consent. Um, and I'd been down and done this <coughs> potential officer's course for the Royal Marines, I had A-levels then, so I was eligible to, you know, at the time you needed, it was sort of daft, like two years at A-level. And so I had, you know, everything was ready to go as far as I was concerned. And then my parents sat me down and said, we really don't want you to do this. We will happily support you if you go and get a degree first. Uh, and then if you still want to join the Royal Marines, but at the moment we're not happy with this. So we won't, they, they wouldn't give me their consent to that. So I'd have to wait till I was 18 and so many months. You know why that was? What, 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 is, what was their uh, I suspect because they're, you know, if I'm being completely honest with you, the, the, um, I came from a middle-class family who probably looked down on the fact that I didn't have a degree or wasn't intending to go and do something like be like my dad as an accountant or my mom who was a nurse or whatever. And, uh, and and perhaps they were concerned for the path that my two younger brothers might tread if they watched me just leave school with two A-level, two E's at A-level and go and get, you know, go and join the Royal Marines. So I, I genuinely no idea. I, I probably didn't have the maturity to ask those questions at the time. I was just frustrated and angry. Anyway, over a period of six months, they kind of wore me down and said, we'll pay for some driving lessons and loan you the money for your first car if you go to university. And, you know, the thought of chasing girls and driving cars was kind of higher on my priority list at the time than running around doing press-ups in a field in Limston. So, yeah, I chose that. And I thought, I'll go to uni. I'll I'll do some uh, easy, you know, walk-in-the-park course just to tick the box for my parents and I can go off and be a, a Marine. And I suppose the longer I spent at college and uni and the more I saw of normal life, the less being told what to do all day, every day appealed to me, I suppose. So uh, the, the, the fire for joining the Marines kind of died out quite quickly, probably within about six months of me going to college. And, uh, and I enjoyed, you know, the same things everybody else do when they live away from home for the first time and, and all that stuff. But obviously, there must be something that uh, in, in terms of, you know, obviously that desire to join the Royal Marines and also... Oh, so, so I picked the boriculture because um, uh, I dicked around in my A-levels quite a lot and uh, because I only needed two easy A-levels, so I spent most of my time playing sports or, yeah. you know, to mischief or whatever, setting fire to things. And so I didn't have good enough A-levels to go and do whatever chemistry at Cambridge or something. So I, I had to go through, I think, it, I want to say it's called a clearing house or something. I remember being on the phone quite a lot the day my results came out. One of the play, one of one of the places that um, would take me was uh, Myasco College, University of Central Lancashire, and I read about this arboriculture and forestry course, and it sounded kind of good in the sense that it didn't require an awful lot of. I'm, I'm <laughs> really saying I'm going to offend a lot of people now, but it sounded like a piece of piss to be honest, and it sounded like it was a bit outdoors and a bit more fun than just you know sat in a classroom. So I was like, yeah, that'll do fine. Um, I'll go and get a degree in whatever that is, and you know think about the. I'll put the Marines on hold for a few years, go and enjoy myself for a bit, and then I can I can come back to what I want to do. Um, it must it it clearly has inspired you a lot then to you know to actually take it further. And then was was it like yeah maybe one or two years later setting up your own company? So um, yeah, obviously yeah, you found a passion for it at that uh, university or a bit later. 
I don't know if I had a passion for it. I'd put it down to arrogance probably at the time. Um, when I was at uni, I was, uh, again, quite... It was sort of like an extension of school, really, in that my report card was um, quite a smart lad, but, you know, doesn't really apply himself boredom more than anything else. So at uni, I did the bare minimum to get... And actually, sometimes, you know, I would do my assignments literally the morning they were supposed to be handed in and still get 70% or whatever. There was nothing there to motivate me. I didn't feel like I had a ladder to climb. Uh, and the longer I... I actually quite enjoyed the plant biology side of arboriculture. I didn't so much enjoy the wishy-washy. We had a uh, we had a module called something like the urban forest, which was very uh, holistic. I didn't enjoy that side of the the course at all. And most of the modules in the in the final year, the BSc, were landscape, amenity value of trees, you know, all that kind of jazz. It wasn't very kind of hard biology. And yeah, it, probably quite arrogantly, I started doing tree surveys. I remember the first job I ever got, I had these little business, I don't use, I haven't used business cards for over a decade, but I had business cards printed. And um, I used to give them to my girlfriend who was a hairdresser <clears throat> and she would you know, hand them out to people who taught anything, anyone who mentioned a tree or something to do with the garden, she gave them a card. And she was doing the hair of some guy one day called Ross, uh, and we're friends now. And uh, he, was, he was telling her how he built his own house and he wanted a kind of woodland garden on, you know, it's quite a large house with a, a large piece of land, more or less all the way around it. Uh, and and, a, and about a third of this, he wanted as kind of a woodland garden to provide some screening from the road. And Kylie said, oh yeah, my Rob does that and gave him a card. And he called me and said, I'd like to get you up to talk about, you know, doing this. And I have no experience of landscape design or um, planting plans, I, you know. So I threw on a shirt and tie, ran down to um, uh, WH Smith, bought a load of large pads and, pencils and <laughs> I don't even know what things are called those right angle devices um, and uh, yeah just tried to look the part really went down there and talked to him and I said yeah yeah you know I can do that kind of blagged it a little bit and um, he said okay well go away and, and have a think about it come back to me with some preliminary uh, ideas and, and tell me what it costs and uh, and if I like it you can do it I um, <laughs> went back home cleared the stuff off the dining table and started to you know like draw out, and I, you know I hadn't, I, I had no site plan, I hadn't measured anything. If if there was Google Maps at the time, I probably wasn't even aware of it. Uh, it was very, and I just drew out what I could remember and put some different tree species in that would you know um, be of interest at different times of the year, and some of them that would grow slower and provide screening, and some that would you know whatever. I took this back to him, and he said, "Oh, it looks great. Yeah, I'd like you to do it. How much is it?" And I put the figure out of nowhere and said, my fees will be about £2,000. And, you know, obviously I don't know what all of the fees for the contractors are because I haven't kind of priced that up yet. And he went, yeah, no problem. And he opened his laptop and said, if you give me a sort code account number, I'll transfer you the money now. Wow, yeah. Light bulb went off in my head, I think. And <laughs> it kind of went from there. Like, he was my first kind of proper client where I did something more than just in the, looking at an individual tree. And I realized that actually if you present yourself properly and put the effort in and um, don't just turn up in a, in, a, in a scruffy old clothes and start sucking your teeth when someone asks how much it is. If you look like you know what you're talking about, people assume you know what you're talking about. So it was quite a valuable lesson. There. And actually, um, when it was completed, it was quite nice. When it was completed, he invited me and Kylie, uh, my then girlfriend, around for, uh, for dinner at the end of it when it was all finished. And we stayed friends. We've been on holiday together since. In fact, I had a meal with him about a month ago. Um, we became good friends after that. That's amazing. I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's that air of confidence, isn't it? That uh, you, you, know, you project and, you know, confidence um, in your own ability. I suppose I remember someone saying or quoting that um, confidence is actually convincing the other person that you're confident. Uh, yeah. I mean, rather I mean, than yourself, you know. 
Yeah, I think there's a certain amount of truth in that, yeah. <laughs> it depends on how, how perceptive they are, I guess, but yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, you, people want to put their faith in someone who is confident, it doesn't regardless of what they say, <laughs> in, in, to yeah. some degree. It's um, the fact that they can deliver on what they've said. You know, like, yeah, I can I can get you the moon. Great, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get it for us, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was quite fortunate in the sense that what he was asking for was probably, you know, within the capability of anybody if they really applied themselves, but... Yeah, it was it was an interesting it was an interesting experiment for me to see what I was what I was capable of, not in, really in terms of delivering work, but um, in terms of winning it in the first place. So did that then spark off um, the fact that oh yeah, yeah I've, you know, just got two thousand pounds like that? There's something in this. Therefore, is, is that what triggered the sort of the entrepreneurship? Yeah, I did four or five jobs, kind of like that. It, it's one of those things I'm sure you've experienced it yourself when you've once you've done something a few times. Just by sheer word of mouth, particularly when you're at a small scale, you you know you manage to fill your your diary or order book up quite quickly. I remember one point in that first year in 2006 when I was a limited company, I had something like three and a half months worth of work ahead of me at one point, and it was just because I spoke to a tree surgeon and done a small job for him, and he knew a guy who was the estates manager at a hospital in North Wales, and so I went and did a big tree survey for them, and he knew someone else. You know what I mean? And that kind of thing doesn't sustain a business of our size more than five minutes but when you're a one-man band you can get by actually without without doing an awful lot more than just an okay job or something but uh once i've done four or five of those kind of jobs i'd um, i'm extremely financially conservative i saved all of that money and uh, there was something coming out at the time called a picosonic tomograph which is a device you attach around a tree they still sell them now and it produces a, a sonogram which is which when you put several of them together produces like a columnar three-dimensional image of the inside of a tree for decay detection purposes um, and I had no real desire to go around decay detecting people's trees. But what I had worked out is there was quite an appetite for that at local authority level. But these devices were expensive. I, th- I think the first one I bought was, I want to say, £13,000. It may have been a bit more or a bit less. Um, so I bought one, and instead of using it and trying to charge clients five or £600 to tell them what was wrong with their tree, if anything, I worked to a local, local planning authority, a local um, authority uh, kind of asset manager's and uh, tree officers and people like that in the northwest and said i've got this sonic tomograph you can rent it for two thousand pounds a month and then you can presumably you've done some sort of tree survey yourselves you've got an idea of the high value trees that are kind of you know maybe you've got a tree that's got a lot of amenity value but it's in the center of a roundabout for example and you want to make sure it's all right you can instead of paying me five or six hundred pounds a time to come and have a look at those things you can hit them all in one month or two months with this device and there was a huge i think for two years I, it cost me 13 grand to buy it and I think for two years it was rented out at two thousand pounds a month solidly. Uh, so, and, and, I, and, I, and obviously it was almost like having an employee in the sense that it cost me nothing to do that. Uh, I went out and provided for a fee a day of training to show them how to use it, how to interpret the results. And there was always a lot of email tennis when people first started using it because it was you know, niggles with technology and whatever. But yeah, that that again was another little insight for me that actually what you need to do if you want to be successful in business is leverage other people's work rather than your own. And so that was um, that was the impetus for me to really start grinding out as much business development as possible so that I could take on a surveyor and do the reports. And then eventually I took on the guy to write the reports. And so I had a surveyor and a report writer. And then and I would quite happily take a much lower um, income at the time, probably less than minimum wage, because I was paying two people to do the work. And maybe we only had work for two people. So I was sort of superfluous to requirements. But I would spend all my time on administrative stuff, processes, and winning work. Growing the business, yeah. So, in, yeah. so you mentioned then, then you know, you have a you've got a couple of members of staff there. So, how did that, um, you know, how did you go from saying you know being you know that, that sole trader, that, that sorry by yourself there, 
in your, in your company, in your first employees, um, because uh, Arbtech have got a great reputation for having, you know, an amazing team culture. So um, did, it, did did that start on day one, or is it something you've learned? Over no, that's, that's definitely something I and probably people that have worked for me in the past, hand on heart, have learned the hard way. As a 22-year-old, 23-year-old guy, you, you don't know shit about the world, really, do you? Let alone how to run a business and treat people and everything else. And your experience at that age of management is very, very limited. You know, my, my experience of management as a, as a guy in his early, mid-20s was people that had managed me before in pretty shit jobs, you know, when I was a pizza delivery driver or when I worked in a bargain booth. And so not to be too, too disparaging to the to the... To people that do that, you know, that are managers in those businesses, but they, they, they certainly haven't been to business school or they, they don't think too much a lot of the time about employee relationships and things like that. So I was um, probably an absolutely awful manager for a very long period of time. And I think about, uh, I draw two charts quite often to illustrate this point to people, uh, which is kind of difficult to do on here, but they're, they're really simple to describe on the x axis is time and on the y axis is kind of um well obviously magnitude but let's call it uh, quality of decision making and um i i like to uh, separate out technical competence and managerial competence so the the technical competence curve is quite linear at first you can think of this uh, in the same way that when you do your webinars and you teach you know kind of new ecologists how to pra or pea a site their experience scales pretty linearly with every new project that they do for quite a long period of time. But the difference between doing, once you've done 500 PEAs, the likelihood, particularly unless you work internationally or whatever, the likelihood of you coming across something that's way outside of your sphere of competence on the 501st is very, very small. And so the, the, the technical competence curve scales quite linearly and then tails off. And the difference between someone doing 50 and 500 PRAs is quite significant in terms of the quality of their on-site and off-site decision-making. The difference between someone who's done 1,000 and 5,000 is very, probably completely flatlined. I think managerial competence is the total opposite. I think you absolutely suck shit at it for like 10 or 15 years, and then suddenly it goes like this, because you need to accumulate all of those failures before you hit that little inflection point that where suddenly the curve goes exponential. And so the, the managerial curve is literally flat for a really long period of time where the quality of the decision-making is quite poor, Every time you encounter a new problem, it's got nuances and uh, variances that, that mean that you are ill-equipped to deal with it unless you've got someone else's experience to draw on, which I didn't. And uh, and then over time, you build up a, I don't know what the word is really, you build up a feel for what the right thing to do in a given situation is based on all of those previous failures. And then, and then you suddenly start making good decisions. So to answer your question about culture, I think probably if I look back, at the way I used to manage people and our tech in general and probably clients and all sorts of other things. Um, as a guy in my early mid twenties, I, I was probably horrendous. I was probably like Gordon Ramsay yelling and shouting and, you know, I wouldn't have liked to work for myself, but over a period of time, you learn what works and what doesn't, you learn what gets the best out of people and what doesn't. And, uh, through empiricism, through trial and error, you, you end up at a place where you like actually employee relationships matter more than absolutely anything else. Yeah. And I, I, I you know what I think about that because I write about it all the time. I think uh, culture is the number one driver of long-term profits in the business. It certainly shows in your, you know, say, uh, you know, in all your posts, shall we say, that, um, you know, that this is, you know, you, you mention your staff more than you do yourself, clearly, you know, that, that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, they are your number one asset. And in terms of, um, I suppose, um, 
yeah, looking at that management, I suppose, you know, there are the, the things that we, we learn as we go along. Um, so, yeah. so, you know, learning from our failures and, and so forth. So you've, you've, I'd say you've set up a, you know, a few different businesses, um, I can I can see here. So it's, what, yeah. what is it that, that inspires you in terms of, you know, because, you know, you know, Arctic's um, growing um, yeah. as a company, and uh, but you're still getting involved with other areas. I mean, so, so is that something that you're quite passionate about in, in different sort of um, either set um, different businesses? Actually, it's a funny word. Uh, <laughs> uh, the answer is no, I'm not. Um, I, I'm... I'm passionate about the process of winning. I like I like applying myself to something, and as I said, I like to grind out hard. The more difficult something is, often the more I'm prepared to work at it. Like everybody, I like low hanging fruit, but you know what I'm saying. I'm uh, half owner in a business called the Survey House, uh, which is only a year and a bit old now. Year and three or four months, which I started with a guy called Andy Clegg, and it's very much like the the idea was to produce an ArbTech in a much shorter space of time in a different domain. Uh, so the services we provide are topographical surveys, measured surveys, that kind of thing. Andy, the, my contribution was financial. I put in the capital to start the business, a commitment to keep capitalizing it if it needs it, although it's self-sufficient these days. And my, I don't know, my accumulated experience, if you like, in terms of how to set up a business that's extremely efficient uh, process-wise. And then Andy's contribution is himself and his labor in the sense that he manages it on a day-to-day basis. You know, his title is managing director. He makes all of the decisions. He does all the quotes. I literally don't work in the company. I, I probably only speak to Andy once every week or two weeks. Uh, and uh, yeah, we meet up for coffee. He updates me on how things are going. Usually I'm happy with that. So, and it just, you know, it rolls on from there. And I quite, so I, I enjoy, because I don't have to do an awful lot. I enjoy that uh, <laughs> business a great deal because I, you know, I, I don't even take any money out of it because it, as far as I'm concerned, it can just roll up there. And, and um, what I'm interested in is getting another multi-million pound business that's like Arptech, extremely efficient, throws off cash, has no debt, et cetera. Um, and it's a great place to work as well. I'm interested in compressing that cycle from 15 years that it's taken me to do it with Arptech to maybe three or four years with the, with the survey house. So that's that. Um, I've recently started buying my own pieces of land to take through planning. Um, oh. Yeah, I've acquired two sites uh, in the Cheshire area, which I'm yeah in the process of, of learning all of the mistakes that my clients make normally, uh, which is, uh, you know, I've had the ecology surveys, the tree surveys, the topo, so the things that I can resource, I've had them done already. And I'm now in Sorry, is it is the company set up in 2008, is it? Was it Robert Oates Capital Limited? Is that one? Yeah, so Robert Oates Capital is a holding company. Yeah, to be, to, to be completely transparent with you, Arbtech makes quite a lot of money these days. Uh, we By the 30th of August this year, we'd... Um, sorry, by the 30th of September this year, um, we'd made a million pounds in profit before tax um, in, in, and during, throughout coronavirus and everything. Mm. So uh, I have to do something with that capital. And so I pass it up usually to the holding company and either pay it out to myself or I um, invest it in land and property. A few years ago, I bought a large block of woodland for about 150K and um, sold it off in small lots, which produced 240K. You know, just do little things like that um, to keep the capital moving, to keep it generating, to, <laughs> to make it pay for itself. And uh, uh, so I started doing that, but now with sites, it's taken me a very long time to have the, because I'm quite financially conservative, it's taken me a very long time to have the confidence to go and buy land without planning and start trying to uh, uh, get planning permission and then sell it. I don't have any interest at this stage in building anything other than my own home, which I am trying to do as well. 
And the reason for that is that it's, it's, it's again about processes. I know nothing about building anything. I'm not a very manual, not, not a very technically minded person when it comes to, you know, I can barely hang a shelf basically is what I'm saying. <laughs> the, idea of, the idea of managing 20 something contractors on a site where they all speak a language that I don't is, is not something I relish when it's my own money. And so, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm buying sites and I'm taking them through planning, but what I've done is to show you always need a blueprint. Uh, I had this with rental properties as well. I used to buy a particular type of rental property. And my blueprint is to buy sites that are either in flood zone three, so they're very, very difficult to get planning on full stop, uh, but it means they're extremely cheap to buy, uh, or in greenbelt, again, with some conditions. So I'm not just buying random pieces of greenbelt. That's usually, you know, I've got a plot that's in uh, the Wirral, which is literally in between two houses, and it just happens to be in the greenbelt. So there's a very good chance you can do something with it, but the price is quite depressed when you buy the land in the first place to reflect the fact that planning might be a two or three year journey before you can get planning or something. So uh, so that's what I'm doing uh, with Robert's Capital at the moment. Well, I'll go back to the, first of all, congratulations on that that uh, that million pound mark. I've yeah, it was, a, it was, it was uh, in 2018, uh, I wrote to everybody um, and we, we put, you've read the book actually, I think by um, John Doe, OKRs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, OKR1 at Arbtec was in the financial year 2020 to produce a million pounds of profit before tax. So that, A, we've got a very robust business, and clearly I'm in business for a reason, and B, so that we can increase the amount of sharing in good things that we do at Arbtec, bigger salaries. For, I mean, you know, I had the pleasure two days ago of doing everybody's midterm reviews for the year where quite a lot of people were given substantial pay hikes. Um, and it's, it's nice to be able to give people these things. Uh, I wrote to people on Monday or Tuesday when I found out about it. Pret a Manger, you know the the coffee chain, mm -hmm. they do a thing now where you pay twenty pounds a month and you get unlimited free coffee. So I've done that for everybody at Arbtec, and it sounds little twenty pounds a month, but when you multiply it by thirty people, it's you know it cost me six or seven thousand pounds a year. But it's nice to be able to do all of these little things all of the time and constantly add to that list of reasons why you want to stay here. To my job is to make leaving unthinkable in a non sinister way, mm -hmm. um, and so. The bigger the profits are, the better quality of life I can give you for the time you have to spend at work. Absolutely, there's a purpose behind the, the, the profit. Yeah, it's not just the profit for the profit's sake, is it? So that's yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm at a stage in my life genuinely where I don't need to work anymore if I don't want to. I'm not doing this. I could have sold my, I, had, I turned down an offer for several million pounds from the, for the company um, September 2019, and that was the second time I turned the same guy down. Yeah. I'm in this because I like the process of winning. I'm in this because I love the people I work with. Mm -hmm. I'm in this because I enjoy um, in it. I, I want this to. I want this to sound um, uh, fair-minded. I'm in this because I enjoy competition. I like out-competing people, but in a in a fair and above-board way. Um, so yeah, yeah. So it's on. It's in. Uh, yeah, it, it, you're competing with yourself in one way. Uh, yes, very much so. I'm, 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 I'm the incremental gains guy. I want to be one percent better than I was yesterday. Oh, yeah, and it shows. Yeah. It really does show. I mean, I say both in your in your posts and obviously how you can across now. It's it's a, it's, it it's refreshing because I think in in our in our industry, you know, I say in, you know, our, you know the sort of environmental sector, should we say, um, that uh, a lot of people are quite insular. They think they know how to get on with things, and they they you know they know how, they know how their systems work and businesses work. Yeah tend to keep themselves themselves and not open up, but you've been extremely transparent in that. And uh, I, th I think um, it, it, it's, in one way, it just shows the passion and it can be done. 
yeah, it can be it can be done. Literally, it can be done. Um, and you know, there's, there's myriad things I could be doing better. And so it's just a matter of time, isn't it? That I've got to keep chipping away at those things to move the needle. Well, that leads us neatly onto in terms of um, you know just just you're at, is it 25 now members of staff is, it, is that correct? Uh, Round for that uh, number. We just we hired two people the other week. Um, to be honest, I'd have to count them on Slack. Um, <laughs> I'll do that for you. I'll, I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that for you. I mean, we're also there's a guy I'm supposed to be meeting next week as well about uh, taking a job with us in November as well. So yeah, you know, a lot can change, but uh, I, I think it's. Might be 27, something like that. Yeah, no, it's a pretty, pretty rapid growth in the past five years, then, really, uh, Rob. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I attribute it to that, um, that managerial experience curve where, I mean, during, during this time where my, you know, the quality of decision making of mine kind of flatlined for 10 years, we went through the financial crisis and uh, whatever else. And so my staff members grew from one to 10 back down to two. And, you know, it was a bumpy road, but. Uh, I'd say the last five to seven years has been smoother sailing, um, and uh, and I attribute that to the the hiring of a lot of good quality people as well. You know, people like Chris and Jules have come in. A lot of the some of the junior consultants now that we have, I mean, we've got a couple of people on our that have been in the business less than a year, and they're just unbelievably productive and unbelievably hardworking and. Uh, keen and uh, and I do think to a certain extent that's a function of how difficult it is to get a job in our industry these days because there's gajillions of graduates kicked out of universities and colleges with conservation related degrees and there's only so many ecology jobs um, and so they have to you know the average of our junior consultants now has a master's degree and they, they have three or four years volunteering experience and um, but they're mad keen when they get here and it's it's great to see them grow professionally and personally um, and so I think all of those things put together is like I've, I've got better as a business owner. Uh, I've hired some amazing people at the senior and junior level and just the sheer amount of time we've been going and the, the, the effort we put into having a family-like culture, all of those things together make, you know, make things happen. So in terms of your, I suppose, you know, your interview process, I mean, do you, do you is there a, like a strict structure you follow or do you, do you yeah. really look up on your, like a bullshit meter that you have? Um, we, we use both. So um, I, I, I wrote something quite a few years ago now called The Culture Book. I think you've ever seen that, I've even sent it to you. <clears throat> and there's a section there about recruitment and training. Um, and so we have a system for, for recruitment and we like to recruit from our subcontractor pool or people from the asset program because better the devil you know. Um, but uh, uh, what we normally do is um, when we get CVs from people, um, if there's a single mistake in that, that just like that, that dismisses you instantly, we maybe get two or 300 CVs a year. So the idea that if you, you know, if you haven't sent that to two or three people to proofread it and pull it apart, make sure it's error free and everything else, that, that rules you out the first stage. Yeah. Then get a 20-minute, half-an-hour phone call with a senior consultant in your discipline, so if you're an ecologist or an arboriculturist, or if you're from Team HQ, it'll be maybe Julia or whatever. Um, and again, if you can't hold your shit together for 20 or 30 minutes on the phone, then you're probably going to find life at Arbtech very tough indeed. So that might rule you out. The next stage of the process is to have a face-to-face -face, um, structured interview. Um, and uh, that structured interview it means you asked almost exactly the same exactly the same questions in the same roughly the same order um, so that we have a process and that that serves two purposes one it's fair two 
you get to improve that process over time because if you're repeating something and you're seeing a particular reaction or result, you can change the way that you do that structured interview. But stru I find structured interviews are way underrated in, and they're a management tool that just isn't, doesn't seem to be used in, in um, fields like ecology or, or, or culture. People often write on their CV or they have recruiters write for them, I've got experience of this, and we will literally take a hammer to that claim. The idea is it's kind of like the scientific method. You try and falsify the null hypothesis, and if you can't, you accept it. So if someone comes to me and says, I've got experience of bat surveys, I'm like, okay, fine. Uh, how many have you done? Where were they? Can you remember the last site address? Because we'll look it up on the planning portal now and we'll go through your report together. Do you have any reports with you? If not, why not? Can we? Can I contact the last... Um, who, 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 if you did it yourself, did you send it to anyone to be proofread first? Can I contact them about it? Well, I will literally hammer you into the ground until I've decided either you've got experience about surveys or you don't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So you have to demonstrate that experience there to you. Yeah, exactly. And and the, the great thing about that, you don't have to do it aggressively. In fact, the more passively and the politer you are when you do it, the longer you have that you extend that kind of awkward silence and don't answer for people and that kind of thing it's very very telling but the great thing about it is when you get someone um when you get someone good they they cruise through that process because they if they're telling the truth and they're a mature intelligent humorous you know just normal person they will sail through a structured interview because they've got nothing to hide and you can see them uh telling the truth when they say, I don't know the answer to that. And then if you say, well, have a think about it and what's your, what's your initial reaction, you can almost see like the cogs ticking and they'll give you an intelligent kind of informed response. That's great. Uh, so the structured interview is pretty good. That does trip a lot of people up though. And then finally, um, if you, if, and the structured interview is often done with me. Um, it's, it's quite rare that we hire someone without them having a structured interview with me first. Um, and then the final stage if you pass that is we do a live test. Um, so we'll send you out on a client project and um, one of the services our tech offer is the next working day report, so a 24-hour turnaround. So we'll send someone out who's got experience with bat surveys, go and do a bat survey. Um, and we'll, you know, 99 times out of 100, it's a fake client site. It's not a real client site, but we'll organize it so that they're going out, doing their own survey, writing a report in our template, sending it in for QC by a certain deadline, it will be QC'd and sent back to them within a certain deadline. And then they've got to make those adjustments and, and send it out to the client inside of 24 hours. Um, and if they pass that and no other alarm bells are ringing and the, the bullshit meter isn't going off, then then they usually get a job. Wow. I like that. I like that approach. That's, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Even then, probation is 12 months. But the, the thing about it is the more brutally you make your recruitment process, not in a, again, not in, a, not in a nasty way, but in a, the higher you, you raise the bar in your recruitment process, the better quality of people, are, you know, like you can pour hundreds in at the top in these CDs that come in every year and recruiters that cold call you, but we're only hiring six or seven or eight. We're literally getting the cream off the top um, every year. So uh, that, I, and again, I attribute that to our tech successes that, that it's very, very difficult to get a job with us these days. Um, and that our criteria for hiring is not, um, unless you're a senior, it's not based around technical competence because, and I mean this respectfully to people in my uh, domain of boriculture and yours, ecology, what we do is not especially difficult. You can teach it to almost anybody. Um, and so what we're interested in is the person. 
are they a good personality fit for the business? Are they a good personality fit for the team that they're in, ARP, Ecology, uh, Team HQ? Uh, can they work autonomously? Are they self-motivated? Are they all, you need to be ruthlessly organized at tech because we give you so much freedom and autonomy over your time. There's no time sheets. There's no fixed days that you need to work. There's no fixed hours. You get allocated tasks that we know you can do in a certain space of time. And if you get that shit done, you know, no one's on your case. Um, but if you're not a self-starting, well-organized um, individual, then again, uh, you perish really quickly here. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, there's, um, you know, even with, you know, people coming in, let's say with those degrees, whether you a first degree or second degree, and yeah. you're asking them to go out and undertake a reptile survey. You know, you, you don't need two degrees to undertake a reptile survey. Yeah, exactly right, yeah. But what you do need is that, as you say, that attitude to show up, um, be respectful, um, churn out those, you know, get, churn out the report, get the reports out in, in, in a, you know, in a, in a high quality standard and, yeah. uh, and, and, and repeat, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, and that's attitude, isn't it? It, it is. And, and one of the things that startles me quite frequently about these, you know, I even used to write on our text website, you know, when you when you approach us with a cover letter, no one gives a shit about your gap year in Peru. Literally, no one gives a fuck. Don't talk to me about it because I don't care. What I care about is can you show at the right place at the right time with the right equipment and a good attitude so that you, you can get the job done for our client? Because what our client's interested in is planning permission, not have you been to Peru and saved the bloody monkeys in the rainforest? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, and getting candidates to understand that at an early stage in your recruitment process is useful for the business because it filters a lot of people out quickly, but it's also, it's helpful and the right thing to do by the candidates so that they're not, I, I feel like candidates, particularly in our industry, don't get enough feedback from, you know, when, when they are rejected from an application or they don't get enough coaching as to what we want out of people. Um, when, when you, when you get put in touch with Arbitech during that initial 20 minute kind of 20, 30 minute phone call with a senior or with Chris or whatever, um, you'll get a very, very good feel for what we want out of a person. And I, I, sometimes when I talk to candidates, it's almost like they've, they've no idea what, how they're supposed to present themselves if they've been to two or three other interviews somewhere else. And I, I, again, I find that unfair and astonishing. Yeah, that, that's, that, no, I think that's great. I mean, I, I mean, it leads, I mean, we're coming to the, sort of the end of the sort of uh, um the podcast now and i think just you've touched on a few items I'd, I'd like to actually just expand on just a little bit more if i may sure yeah go for it. okay and that's going down to so obviously this this podcast is aimed at those considering a career either either considering a career in ecology or boriculture um some sort of some environmental um, um career um so we're you know we're tracking ecologists and arborists and we're working at, in, at all different levels so could you, could you for, for those who are actually at university at, at present or in education, you know, um, what are the skills that you are looking for as they're developing their academic qualifications at university? Okay. Um, I've got a two-part answer to that, if that's all right. Um, yeah, firstly, uh, not to try and uh, avoid answering the question, but your academic qualifications, at least as far as I'm concerned, are a lot less important than what you're like as a person and how mature you are, commercially, professionally, whatever. Um, if you have fallen into ecology, kind of like I did with the borough culture, because you don't really know, you're a bit aimless, you don't really know, it sounds like fun, whatever, you're going to really struggle because you're going to be up against people who are in it for the love of the game and uh, they will do whatever it takes to get a job. And unfortunately, and it is unfortunately in this industry, 
there are so many people after so few jobs that the labor market is quite depressed. In other words, the, 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 the entry salaries for graduate level ecologists are very low. Um, and uh, as a consequence, people are less willing, quite rightly, to invest enormous sums of money in courses and all kinds of, or they're less able to invest a lot of money in courses and that kind of thing to try and upskill themselves. So what I would say is success in any domain in life, whether it's relationships, politics, business, sport, anything, is work times time. That's the only formula for success, period. There are four possible outcomes from work times time. One is work really hard, but not for very long. Um, that's not going to get you anywhere. The other is work for a really long time, but not very hard. That's probably not going to get you anywhere either. Although, you know, it might get you a little bit further because consistency works to a certain degree. Mm. Um, the other is don't work hard at all for hardly any time. And that clearly gets you nowhere. And then the only other thing you can do is work your fucking ass off for as long as it takes. Um, that was my attitude when I started growing a business. It's been my attitude whether I've um, fought people at international level competitions, whether I power, you know, in anything I approach, I know it's work times time. Learning a language is work times time. Investing in your relationship with your partner is work times time. So if you're, if you're in your first or second or third year of university, what you need to be doing is scouring every possible job application you can get your hands on. Go for as many interviews as you can. Meet as many people as you can. If you're able to, get yourself to a, um, a conference or some sort. You know, there's a lot of free webinars going now. That's a, a, any way you can expand your network of people, your network of influence is, is a great thing to do. Get on LinkedIn. For fuck's sake, make connections. I can't tell you how many times I... I've spoken to people who've been on the asset program at Arbtech and we like them and they still haven't even connected with me on LinkedIn. And then they'll email me out of the blue and say, are there any, you know, are there any jobs going or something? And you think, well, if you, if you had a LinkedIn profile and you connected with me, you'd know about this already. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like make the effort, use your brain, make the effort. If you can do, if you can do find someone like Arbtech where um, we don't mind helping people along the way because if you pay it forward, it comes back to you anyway. So and what I mean by that is volunteer back groups are a great example of people who are very cliquey and have a reputation for not helping anybody who wants a career in consultancy. Mm. Um, I have no idea why that is. If I was running a volunteer back group, I would want all hands on deck and as much money in, in the kitty as possible to do as much conservation work as possible. It doesn't seem to work that way, unfortunately, in real life. So go and find a consultancy like Arctech who don't mind you going out and shadowing their consultants. I've got no objection to you coming out on a client site and following one of my consultants around while they do a PEA and pepper them with questions. And then go have a go at it yourself and write your own little report and send it to us. We'll QC it and send it back to you. If I can help you, I will. But if you don't help yourself in the first place, you're going nowhere. Work time's time is what I'd say to them. That's fantastic. That's, that's, that's an amazing piece of uh, you know, you know, uh, very detail and uh, information there. I, I think you're absolutely right in terms of um, people say sometimes it's it, it, oh, it, it, you know you, you got here because of luck, and you know I, I don't know about you, but I don't particularly agree with you know you you make your own you make your own. Yeah, well, yes yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, both of us are white British males born yeah. into a modern democracy, bloody blah 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 blah. Yeah. But what you do with that that matters. We, we you and I shared the luxury of a good platform to, on which to launch your life. But so does everybody else who's in university in the UK. So look, look is not a, look is a, a huge factor in a lot of things we do. But you have to put yourself in a position where you can take advantage of it. So, yeah, yeah. There's the, there's known as the you know, the look creates 
the look at the way you are born, absolutely right. And then the, the look that you, you put yourself in a situation. So yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So um, in terms of just wrapping up a few things, Rob. So I think that's, I say what, that that's, it's been amazing. Yeah, I, I think I've, I've learned a hell of a lot just listening to you uh, um, yeah, in the past uh, but uh, I'm going to ask you just a few short questions, if I can. Yeah, a little bit of fun, that type thing. So, okay, so, uh, yeah, answer these however you like. You know, okay. Not so, okay, so if you weren't on this podcast with me, what would you be doing then? Uh, right this second, I'd probably be at the gym. Gym, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. How, how many times do you go to the gym? Uh, I train normally twice a day. I do some form of cardio and some form of either fight sports or, uh, or powerlifting. Um, I've got some powerlifting-oriented goals at the moment that I want to tick off before I'm 37, uh, and I want to tick them off before I'm 40. So um, my girlfriend's the head Olympic weightlifting coach at the gym I go to, so I'll probably be training with her. Okay, do you know that's fun? One more question. So, yeah, so how, when did you start doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Or, or any uh, I started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu when I left the TA. Um, a friend of mine that's... That, uh, I went through a course with, said, you'd really like this, it's right up your street. And uh, for those of you that don't know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is not like karate or Jiu-Jitsu or Taekwondo or something. It's uh, the grappling component of MMA. Um, if anyone is interested, I can send Richard a link to a little YouTube video of um, people fighting in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and you can see for yourself what it is. But, uh, um, and he can put it somewhere with the podcast. But um yeah, I walked into a room full of people, and I'm a fit. You know, I'm I'm a hundred and something kilos. I'm very, very, very strong, very fit. Um, I can bend the my party trick is I can bend a six inch nail in half, a galvanized one. <laughs> with my I can walk into the shop and bend it. Um, so I thought I was going to wreck these people, and I've never been more wrong because it's a, it, it, it's 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 a combination of athleticism and skill as well as And so when I um, was choked out about thirty times in that first session. Uh, regardless of how hard I fought or whatever, um, I had that realization that I'm not prepared to go for the rest of my life being this shit at something that I enjoy. <laughs> so I had to go back. And then, like most things, I jumped into footed and I started doing four hours a week, then eight hours a week, then 12, then 15 hours a week. And then I was going to, I went to every single competition I could go to locally. Then I started going to international ones. Eventually, I became. European super heavyweight champion in the Master One Blue Belt Division. And I, I think at one point in 2017, I was ranked first in Britain, first in Europe, seventh or eighth in the world across all weight classes in my division. Man, that's um, amazing. That yeah. yeah. Um, but it, that, it, that is a function of that work times time attitude. It's like, you will not outwork me. My inner voice is so powerful. No one's outworking me if I want to put my mind to something. And since then, I say no one's out working with me. Since then, I've, I've fought in the Worlds twice and been beaten in the quarterfinals both times <laughs> by referee's decision. So, so you can't win everything, but you can certainly put yourself out there and try. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so now I'm, I, you know, I've, 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 I've decided I'm not going to be a world champion, unfortunately. Um, uh, I've been to Vegas twice and put the effort in for a fight camp and everything else. So, um, so instead, I'm, I'm turning my hand back to powerlifting. Yeah, something I have no very little, if, yeah, if anything about. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's not a sport. You just pick up heavy things and put them back down again. Just <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'll just stick to picking up books. I think. Yeah, yeah. So um, go back to the question. So in terms of this, this may require a little bit of a so favorite quote or misquote. 
Uh, my favorite quote is um, I read on the inside of a book that's on that shelf by Joe Simpson. It's a book called Touching the Void um, uh, about two mountain climbers. And it's, I think it's by T. E. Lawrence. And it goes something like, I'm paraphrasing, so you'll have to apologize. You'll have to make an apology. Um, Those who dream at night in the dusty recesses of their minds are awake to find it was only vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act upon their dreams with open eyes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. You, you've got to watch those people. <laughs> <laughs> I like the one you, you I like the one you, you actually, you then again, you put out was it, was it the, tra- the trajectory you're on is more important than where you are? Yeah. I think that's a, that's, um, I'm a huge fan of Jordan Peterson. And while those are my own words, that's certainly a sentiment I picked up from him. If you, it's why I hashtag things quite a lot of the time with always climbing. If you, if you work, if you're out there working, if you're on a trajectory, that's it's like for these graduates. If you're working towards something, if you're climbing that ladder, it's way more important that you keep doing that than where you are on that ladder, whether you're at rung one or rung a hundred or rung a thousand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think you know sometimes the. Destination is important, but it's, it's, it's your journey along it as well. I, I, I mean, we've had this discussion before. It's why I have no vision, no, no business plan, no nothing for the business. I know that if you focus on the processes, the goals take care of themselves. Yeah. The, tech is an extremely profitable company, and it has nothing to do with my grand vision to turn it into some hundred million pound business. It's literally all day, every day, we are ruthlessly executing against a strategy that works. And any deviation or misalignment from that strategy gets corrected very very quickly great and right could you summarize yourself in three words bald uh. <laughs> <laughs> you can just leave it there if you like just just yeah bald, bald, bald. i mean i usually my answer when people say that is robert matthew oaks because it's my name yeah um, yeah Okay, well, this ties on quite nicely then. So what three words would others use to describe you? Oh, Jesus. Uh... <laughs> Let's leave those. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll skip those. We'll skip those. We'll go. Yeah. Okay, and um, right now, yeah, you clearly have read a hell of a lot of books on different sort of top disciplines. So if you had to choose one discipline to study for the rest of your life, what would it what would it be hands down psychology psychology why is that it's it's the more i read about particularly things like social psychology and individual differences um the more interesting it becomes if you um everything from psychometric assessments to personality differences i was doing the crazy firefighting model whatever um you can see it play out in everyday life. You can, yeah. I'm not saying that you can read people or whatever, but you can, when you have some uh, academic underpinning to your understanding of how people's minds work, you can, you can unpack things a lot better a lot of the time. And I, I genuinely attribute um, an awful lot of whatever, you know, I don't want to say my success because it sounds extremely conceited, but I attribute a lot of what I've achieved to um, my devotion to reading in fields of economics, which is basically psychology anyway, and psychology. Yeah. Um, 
I think yeah. it is, it's people, isn't it? So, you know, everything we do, you know, we serve people, you know, and that's, you know, our clients, we serve them, we have to, you know, talk to them. So everything, sales, marketing, back community, yeah, it, it's back it, psychology. There's also, there's a lot of internal narrative and, you know, like it's a, it's a bloody interesting field. Yeah. Great. So uh, finally, so um, where or how can we connect with you and and, and Artex? Uh, well, as I mentioned before, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, it's... Uh, Robert L. Capitan Oates um, on LinkedIn. Uh, we have an Instagram account, which is ask.arbtech. Um, and uh, I mean, you can get hold of me uh, by emailing arbtech. Uh, you can email the generic email address. Um, if anyone has any particular questions you want to put to me, I have no objection to you coming to me. I'll always try and help you. My email address is my two initials, ro at arbtech.co.uk. Um, I think that's kind of it, really. I don't do uh, Twitter or um, Facebook or anything yeah, like that. I know, you don't, I know you definitely don't do Facebook, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I Facebook. I'm meeting a lot more people who don't do Facebook, yeah. It's, it, the thing with Facebook is there's too many... There's too many I, I, uh, I deactivated my Facebook account years ago, um, I think when I got divorced, um, and I never reactivated that. I've since deleted it, permanently deleted it. Um, and what I noticed was that there's just so Facebook allows people the opportunity to express themselves in what they think is a safe environment, but you end up losing respect for so many people because they just come out with shit all the time, but particularly when it's something to do with like Brexit or COVID or, you know, like anything like that. The, 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 what astonishes me about a lot of people that I like and respect, and that's why I don't want Facebook is how little they think about what they say sometimes or how little thought they put into it, or how little reading they've done. So um, I used to dislike Facebook mostly because of that, because you, you would just look at something sometimes and be like, what the, f what the fuck are you thinking? Yeah. Um, so I've got rid of that. And what I like about Instagram is it's basically just pictures, isn't it? Um, yeah. Indeed. Well, Rob Oates, thank you for joining me on the Ecology, Ecology Academy podcast. Yeah, no, thank, thank you very much for your time, Richard. Cheers. If you enjoy our show and want to help, then please click on the subscribe button and rate us on your favourite podcast player. As that's how you can inspire ecologists in the making, help retain great talent and provide insights of our industry to a much wider audience of why ecology really does matter. Thank you. And remember, learning is a lifelong endeavour. So stay curious, be adventurous and build bridges for others to cross.